Hello, this is the Vanguard Court Watch podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Right now, Vanguard Court Watch operates in three counties in California, including San Francisco and Sacramento. Our goal is to shine a light on everyday injustice in the court system. This podcast is hoping to go a step further and shine a spotlight on criminal justice reforms on a national level. How is it possible that someone who was not there and did not know any of those involved could be wrongly convicted and currently serving 23 years in prison? That's what we're here to find out. Joe D. Martin Jr. did not receive a fair trial in 1996, a change.org petition claims. As a result, he was wrongly convicted and has been wrongfully in prison for 23-plus years. He was found guilty of first-degree murder and two attempted murders for which he is innocent. His conviction rested on the use of perjured testimony, prosecutorial misconduct, and closed-door deals made with witnesses from the state, as well as intimidation of defense witnesses prior to trial. Joe had no connection to anyone involved in the case. He is innocent. The state's theory was that the shooting at the market was the result of an ongoing drug war between his co-defendants and some unknown drug suppliers from California. The prosecutor told the jury that Joe was a henchman for Mafia Smith family. This was supposed to be his connection to the Smiths and the reason for committing these crimes. However, Sean Smith testified at trial that he never met Joe. Dallas Smith and Vera Ashby both testified at Joe's post-conviction hearing that they did not know Joe and that he had never been to their home. Kevin Robinson and Tim Miller, victims, testified that they had never met Joe nor had they seen him around the neighborhood. Joe had no connection or motive to commit these crimes. Joining us in a few minutes will be Joe D. Martin, live from a Tennessee prison. And in the meantime, to help us shed light on this case, we have here Lori Woodney. Lori, how did you get involved in this case? Well, David, I grew up with Joe Martin. We went to school together, sixth grade through 10th grade, until I moved out of state. And uh, many years later, about 22 years later to be exact, I was talking to one of our former classmates about where some of our friends we had grown up with are today. And when she told me that Joe Martin was in prison for murder, I really was beside myself. I couldn't I couldn't reconcile that the person I grew up with and that I knew had committed a murder. So I got online and I started looking for him, looking for information about him. And I stumbled on a website that his family had set up claiming his innocence. And so I read the website. I got in touch with his mother and um, from there got in touch with Joe personally. She took me to, to visit him once. And through everything I saw and read, I just firmly believed he was innocent, and I felt like I needed to get involved in this case and help prove that. And 
Can you explain how it was that Joe came to be identified or how he came to the attention of the police in this case in the first place? Yes. Um, officially, there was a Crime Stoppers report. And um, that report is dated January the 29th of 1996. Now, the crime occurred on December the 17th, 1995. That Crime Stoppers report implicated Joe um, as a person who might be possibly involved and um, said the person you're looking for might be Joe Martin. The interesting thing around that and, and the theory that we have around that because of evidence that we have in the investigative file is that the police, interestingly, ran a query on Joe Martin on 125. Uh, they looked him up to see what was in the system. And there's a supplemental report from the lead detective in this case, Grady Elam. And Grady said, said that he put the lineup together on January the 26th. And he had that shown to Gary. Gary is one of the people that came forward and admitted that he did participate in and commit this crime. The Crime Stoppers report, however, is dated on 129, which would be the following Monday. So there's uh, there's some curiosity around that, um, that, you know, the lineup was put together the Friday before the Crime Stoppers report is dated. So we think that um, someone who was in an unrelated case that had come forward back in December and said they would try to find out who this Joe was they were looking for, um, came up with the name Joe Martin and threw that out there to help themselves in their own case to get charges dropped or to get probation or a lesser sentence in the, own, uh, in the case that they were arrested for. And it, it's your belief that uh, Joe did not know any of the the people involved in this case and was never at the scene, correct? Absolutely. In fact, it's not just my belief. It's a fact of record. Um, several of the co-defendants, the two that he was tried with, two brothers, uh, Sean and LaDante, both of them stated that they did not know Joe Martin at different times. They'd never seen him, didn't know him. Their other brother, the person whose home that supposedly this group left from on the way to the crime, that brother said that he didn't know Joe and had never seen Joe. And his girlfriend, who lived with him at that home, said that she had never seen Joe, didn't know Joe, and that he had never been to their home. Wow. So I'm still confused as to going from that to the fact that uh, he gets caught up in this case. Right. I, you know, the only thing we can see is that Joe was a sacrificial lamb, someone that was implicated in this crime by someone who had something to gain in their own situation. Someone that put his name out there falsely, falsely accused him, and the police went, from there, um, you know, they get tunnel vision sometimes when the name is thrown up. And they were waiting on the name of that fourth suspect. 
so that they could go to the green jury. So they really were under a lot of pressure to solve this case because it was the murder of a 12-year-old child in a drive-by shooting a week before Christmas. And the whole case was surrounding um, this ongoing drug war between these two different gang factions. So there was a lot of public pressure to solve this case. And when Joe's name was thrown out there, they just got tunnel vision and went after him. So do we know that there was a fourth person in that car? And if so, uh, what evidence is there that it wasn't Joe? Well, it's interesting because there are different accounts that say three people were in the car, four people were in the car, three or four people were in the car. So, no, we don't really know definitively that four people were in that car. And there's actually absolutely no evidence in this case at all against Joe. There's no DNA evidence. There are no eyewitnesses. No one saw any faces. No one identified Joe that, that saw the crime happen. Um, actually, even one of the victims in the crime who was shot in the leg said he didn't know Joe, had never seen Joe. He said that at trial, he testified that he didn't know who Joe was. So why would Joe be in a car with people he didn't know to go shoot people he didn't know? So in, in these wrongful conviction cases, there's often kind of a string of things that go wrong. Um, sometimes we talk about eyewitness misidentification. Sometimes we talk about bad forensic evidence. Sometimes we talk about prosecutorial misconduct. What happened in this case? What went wrong here? So it's a combination of police work, be it faulty or intentional. Um, a lot of their reports weren't uh, taken to statute in terms of, you know, getting the names of witnesses so that they could go back and, and re-question them or so that the defense could question them later. They, um, they did a lot of things that weren't by the book. Um, and then we've got the fact that, you know, we've got this person that said he would find out who Joe is. There was no connection to Joe to any of these people. However, he did know the person that implicated him. Uh, I don't know the nature of their relationship, but, but he does know who that person is. Like he, he knows that person and that person knows him. Also, there were some things that were withheld by the district attorney. There was a TPI report um, that was given over to the police department implicating a person in a drive-by shooting in December that resulted in the death of a child. There's nothing in the file that looks like they thoroughly investigated that lead. And that was never turned over to the defense. So, so you have all of those things working in conjunction. And then you have Joe tried with these two brothers, but you have Gary who turns himself in. And Gary turns state witness. Gary implicated Joe and the two brothers, and um, Gary got a second-degree murder charge, and he is out of prison today. And then you have the person that provided the car to them, Arnett. Arnett was charged with nothing. He should have at least been charged with facilitation, but Arnett turned state witness as well. You briefly mentioned that there was evidence that was withheld. Was there also evidence in this case that was uh, destroyed or just withheld? Well, there are a couple of things. I don't want to say destroyed 
um, or destroyed intentionally, but maybe misplaced or mishandled. Um, the photo lineup that I spoke about earlier that's in question, Joe never saw it. It was entered into evidence at trial, but Joe never saw it. That is nowhere to be found. Um, and we have a lot of questions around that. Um, you know, was it a good lineup? Was it an actual lineup or was it as, you know, separate photos? Uh, the testimony of Arnett regarding the photo lineup at the juvenile transfer hearing for LaDante and then at the trial, the testimony in those two things vary. So they, they don't uh, coincide with each other at all. So can you talk a little bit more about the photo lineup and, uh, and what the problems were with that? Yeah, like I said, we can't find it. It's disappeared. So whether it's been destroyed or just lost over the years from people checking out the file and not returning it, I don't know. But there were no copies of it made that we're aware of because there are no copies available. And another thing is that um, he never saw it. And just the whole question around the dating, how it came up uh, in the report that the detective showed the lineup on 126, but the Crime Stoppers report that he references in his report. Oh, can you hold on? He's calling now. So we now have a special treat today uh, because uh, we have uh, Joe Martin himself calling in to the program uh, to talk live on on our podcast. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hello, how are you? So uh, where are you being held right now? Right now, I'm at a South Central Correctional Facility in Tristan, uh, Tennessee. And how long have you been there? Uh, I've been here for uh, just over three years. And uh, how is the treatment of prisoners in, in that facility? Uh, well, um, I don't know if you know or not, but this is a uh, court prison, which was a private institution. And, um, I mean, just honestly speaking, um, it's subpar, subpar treatment and care of inmates. I mean, you know, um, I don't know if you know a lot about how facilities are ran, but, um, they, they cut every corner they can in order to meet their bottom line, which is a dollar. That's unfortunate. Um, so tell us a little bit about your case and, and how you ended up getting caught up in, in the legal system. Well, um, I was convicted of a uh, drive-by shooting in 1995. Um, I honestly don't even know truthfully how I became a suspect other than... Um, in the district attorney's file, found some crime stoppers report. And um, someone supposedly called the crime stoppers and told them to look at me as a possible suspect. And I guess from that day forward, I was, I was their guy. And when, when this all happened, what what were you thinking as you were going through this legal matter? Are you thinking, well, this is a mistake and they're going to correct it? Or were you thinking, oh, they got me now? That's pretty much exactly what I was thinking was, well, um, I guess that 
after they do a little investigation or talk to some people or whatever they needed to do, I, I, I assumed that I would be let go. I didn't ever even think that it would be going to a trial or anything of that nature. And when it did go to the trial, I was like, well, okay, surely, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be found not guilty. But it just wasn't the case. And, and do you have a sense for why that happened? Well, my honest opinion is that uh, at the time, um, there had recently been uh, another drive-by shooting that was similar to my case, and it had gone unsolved, and I think the public demand for um, the rest to be made um, in, in at least one of these cases drove them to just be determined to get some convictions in at least one of those cases. Um, um, this case, my case, was the first one I guess in which they were able to do that. Can you kind of give us a sense of what it felt like going through this whole process and then how you felt when uh, you heard the jury say guilty? Um, it sort of felt like an out-of-body experience where I was watching something happen or watching a movie maybe and I was just watching the plot unfold. Um, I mean, I couldn't hardly imagine what they could have had that would have indicated that I was involved in the crime in any way. I couldn't. Um, when they, when they, when the jury came back with the verdict, I mean, I was actually shocked and it, I just couldn't believe it. I was, I was in shock. And since then, what have you been trying to do to uh, get yourself out? Oh, I've done everything that a man probably could do from um, learning the law. Uh, I became a legal aid, um, helping other people work with their cases, and you know, also trying to do as much work as I could in making all the facts that I was aware of come out at different proceedings, like my post-conviction um, hearings, um, brought in different witnesses that I thought would make all the difference. Um, there were a few pieces, a couple of pieces of uh, exculpatory evidence that wasn't turned over to the defense team, and I thought maybe that would make a difference, but I found that, you know, they had... Uh, they had loopholes like uh, immaterial or uh, uh, harmless error. You know, these are the things that they said. That, that the, uh, for, for example, the uh, exculpatory evidence. There was someone who called and said that another person um, was a suspect and that they, they had admitted to them that they, had, uh, they may have been involved. And so that wasn't turned over to the defense. And I presented that at my post-conviction hearing. And the, the ruling was that the evidence wasn't material to the case. And so um, I, I've been involved in every step of the legal process that I could be involved in. You know, I drew up my own 
post-conviction petition, you know, of course, they um, appointed me an attorney and they amended it. But uh, I also grew up my own federal habeas corpus petition. Uh, you know, I've contacted every innocence program across this country and a couple in a couple of different countries, um, the UK, British Columbia, you know, Australia. Just trying to see if anyone would help me in my cause. What would you like to tell the folks that are listening to this program? I'd like for people to know that wrongful convictions are occurring at an alarming rate, much more than an average citizen would, would ever believe is happening. You know, um, they may seem ironic, but I do still believe in our justice system. We said that when as enemies are involved in the process, sometimes the process is flawed. And I do believe that uh, it's probably one of the better systems that operates around the country. However, the, the flaws that are in it are costing innocent people valuable years out of their life. And the process really needs to be overhauled and there needs to be some mechanisms instituted that will allow people who have been wrongfully convicted to somehow get into the process and, and have that exposed in a timely manner. You know, I I believe that everything is fair and it would be above board, but what I've learned is that there's always a rule or there's always room for them to lockdown and clamp onto the conviction that they have is so much harder to work from behind the conviction than a person might think, you know. I was thinking, okay, I'll have an appeal and if we appeal, they'll they'll see what I'm saying, they'll get the point and I'll overturn my case. But I've learned that uh, the courts sometimes aren't too quick to want to overrule other judges and they defer to their decision, and they excuse them uh, from the mistakes that they make with harmless error, you know, and my question is always, how can an error that takes the person who's innocent and convicts them, how can that be harmless? And I just want the people to know that in a legal process, you have to pay very close attention to everything that's going on because sometimes it's just not as fair as we would like to believe. Thank you so much for joining us, and we wish you very well in in your upcoming legal fights. Well, thank you very much for having me, Dan. Thank you. That was Joe Martin, live from a Tennessee prison, and uh, you're listening to the Davis Vanguard Court Watch podcast. So we're now back to... To Lori, um, thank you to Joe for joining us um, and uh, giving us a few words. Um, I want to get back uh, to the issue here because, you know, a lot of what Joe raises, unfortunately, I think we, we hear from pretty much every person caught in the legal system that doesn't belong there. There's kind of a level of disbelief that, okay, the system's going to sort itself out, but the system isn't really set up to sort out claims of innocence, are they? No, not at all. Not at all. As he very eloquently stated, 
And um, right now, where does his case actually stand? What are his chances of getting exonerated? What processes does he still have left that he can do? Well, like he explained to you, he's been through all of his appeals. Um, what he has left in terms of the legal side is a second or successive habeas petition. Um, we have the opportunity to potentially work with one of these innocent organizations that takes interest in his case and go for an actual innocence through one of these organizations. Um, in Tennessee, there is a conviction review unit in Davidson County, which is the county for Nashville. Um, so we could fill out the paperwork and submit his case to the district attorney to review the case and, and give him a second trial. And then, of course, there's clemency, which would be the last option. We would petition the governor for clemency. Right. So right now... Is there anything that's been filed, anything in progress? Uh, no, unfortunately, we're at a place where we are looking for another attorney. We have submitted and have some interest from a couple of innocence organizations who are currently reviewing his case for a second and, and one of them for probably a third or fourth time, um, but timing is everything. And, um, you know, those reviews really take a long time, so we don't want to sit and rest on that while they're looking over the case and deciding if it's something they want to take on. We're continuing to do things to try to shed light on him in hopes that we can find the right attorney. Uh, what have past courts ruled in terms of looking at some of this post-conviction evidence? Oh, that would have been a better question for Joe, but I think he did get to that where basically every issue he raised, they just came back and said, well, those things weren't material or those were harmless errors. Um, they they weren't favorable at all. Right. And, they, and that's always they, the problem. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you have one court not wanting to uh, step on the toes or, or of another court is what it comes across as. I think a lot of people, when they hear about stories like this, go, how is it possible that you could not be doing anything, you could not have been there, and and you get involved in a case like this? I mean, this could really happen to anyone, really. It really could, and it really does. And, you know, I've heard so many stories and become friends with so many people that are exonerated through the Innocence Network conferences, and, and many of their stories are a lot like Joe's. I was nowhere near that. I was at work. I don't even know how my name got brought up. I don't know those people. Yet all those men serve time, and some women as well, serve time in prison for things they didn't do. One thing that Joe didn't bring up and you and I haven't discussed yet is, you know, Joe had an alibi. Joe was at home that day. Joe had prepared dinner for his girlfriend that day. Uh, she was at work, but she called him throughout the day as she was on her breaks at work. And she arrived home around 3.30, 4 o'clock. He had prepared dinner. Uh, her friend was with her. Both of them testified at trial that when they got there, Joe was home. Now, this murder happened at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, so for Joe to 
drive across the city and participate in this murder and get away from this murder and then get back home by 4 o'clock would have been almost impossible anyway. But to have had this dinner prepared certainly would have been impossible. There was a, a witness who saw him at home that day, a neighbor. Um, Joe had gone out to the mailbox to check the mail. Um, they lived in a subdivision that where the mailboxes were all at the end of the street. So he had walked down the street to check the mail because they hadn't checked it in a couple of days. And he spoke with one of his neighbors. No one interviewed that neighbor ever. And unfortunately, that neighbor passed away in 2017, shortly before I got involved in this case. Not only is he innocent, he's innocent and had alibi witnesses at trial. And he still was convicted and, of this crime. And did anyone ever talk to the jury about, you know, what they heard and why they convicted him? No, no one has done that yet. And that's something that we have talked about uh, as something to do potentially in the future um, with the right attorney that that maybe that would be something to look into. But no, no one's ever spoken to the jury. Because it's always interesting to hear how juries uh, get around alibi witnesses. And sometimes they just decide that the witness is testifying to, to help their friend out. Uh, sure. But but sometimes there there's corroborating evidence uh, as well, and that's still not enough. Often enough, right, right. And you know they they weren't at home with him all day. I mean, they said that he said that, but she had called throughout the day, and clearly the dinner was ready when they got home. And it wasn't you know just uh, some throw it in the oven for 45 minutes lasagna kind of dinner. It was a dinner that, you know, would have taken all day to prepare. A roast and uh, macaroni and cheese, turnips, cornbread. I mean, it was a full meal. So clearly he would have been home working on that. As well as no one ever interviewing the neighbor. I mean, to me, you know, that's ineffective assistance of counsel at the very least. Yeah, and I didn't ask that question, um, and I meant to. Uh, you know, what what did the uh, trial attorney raise, um, and and what didn't they raise? Really, nothing, honestly. And he didn't object to a whole lot either. And the transcripts are out there for anyone to read that wants to read them. We have um, a podcast that I know you're going to link to. And through that podcast, we've made available the redacted version of the investigative report because there are plenty of people named in there who aren't guilty of anything, and and we didn't want their information to get out. And then we have links to the trial transcripts as well as all of the newspaper articles. And there were many, many newspaper articles because this is a really high-profile case because this is the murder of a a 12-year-old child. And as Joe pointed out, it was the second murder of a 12-year-old child in a couple of months in Nashville, Tennessee. So there was a lot of media coverage. All of those things are available through our podcast site uh, for people to go out and check that out on their own and, and to see. And I think it's also worth noting that, you know, Tennessee has a 51-year life sentence. I know that a lot of people are aware of that now because of the Centoya Brown case. Joe is sentenced under that 51 years, 
plus he received another 20 years for the attempted murder of Kevin, who I spoke about earlier, the adult victim who was shot in the leg. He said that he didn't know Joe Martin, had never seen Joe Martin. So he has a 70-year sentence before parole eligible. So if people want to learn more or they want to listen to the podcast that uh, you folks have set up, uh, where do they go? Well, they can go to Joe's website, first of all, the joedmartinstory.org, and that website links to all the social media. The podcast itself is This Criminal Nation, D-I-S Criminal Nation, at Podbean, so it's .podbean.com. And we're in the process of getting that pushed out to iTunes and iHeartRadio as well. Very good. So for those listening, we will have the link to the podcast. We were originally going to have some of his podcast embedded onto this one, but because he was able to come on, we don't have to do that. But if you want to listen to more details, uh, you can uh, go to the bottom of the screen and uh, click on the link and, uh, and listen to their podcast as well. Thank you, Lori Woodney, for coming on to our show. Well, thank you so much, David, for having us. We really appreciate it, and we appreciate the work you're doing bringing attention to these cases. Yes. Another episode of Vanguard Court Watch podcast. We got to talk to Joe Martin, uh, live from a Tennessee prison, uh, who is wrongly serving a life sentence for murder from 1993. This has been the Davis Vanguard Court Watch podcast. I am your host, David Greenwell. Join us again soon for another episode.